We're going to be picking up this morning in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. And uh, let's pray, and then we'll turn to God's Word. Our Father, we are so thankful that we get to come before you and hear your Word. Father, we're thankful that we can do this wherever we are. We can do it on an airplane. We can do it on a walk in the woods. But it is particularly important that we do it together. And that's what we do this morning, and that is our privilege, and for that we're very thankful. We pray that your Holy Spirit will open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to obey. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. When we come to John chapter 8, we have a challenge before us. And it's a, a challenge that's textual. And this is where we have to think carefully and uh, not hastily and we actually have to think operationally at several levels. So obviously the first question is whether or not the first 11 verses of chapter 8 belong here at all. Now you already know this is the passage about the woman caught in adultery. But hold the thought as to what the text is about. Let's just think about how we handle a text that isn't in the earliest manuscripts. Now our doctrine of Scripture, what B.B. Warfield called the church doctrine of Scripture, the faithful church's doctrine of Scripture, is that all Scripture is inspired, all Scripture verbally, fully inspired. We believe that there's nothing missing from the Scripture and uh, that there's nothing that can be added to the Scripture. Actually, John issues a Holy Spirit-inspired warning about this very thing at the end of the book of Revelation. So what do we do with textual variants? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that there are not many of them. There, there, when it comes to texts, there just are not many textual variants. But where there are, what do we do with them? Now, if there is a passage that appears in the very earliest manuscripts, there's really no question. But if there's a passage that appears after the earliest manuscripts, the only historical explanation we can come up with is that someone put it there. Okay? This text is amongst those that fits that category. It isn't in the earliest texts. Someone put it there. And the question is, why would someone put it there? Well, I think Don Carson is probably right when he says the best way to understand this is that it is a faithful, truthful uh, retelling of an incident that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus. And in theme, it, it fits here. It's likely that someone later in the apostolic era put it in. Well, the church's way of understanding this is that where you find this kind of textual variant, and, and the most difficult is the long ending of Mark. That, that's the most difficult because there are, there are words in it, there are claims in it that if taken out of context would, uh, would, would be rather dramatic, including drinking poison and handling serpents. We don't have that in John 8. So 
the second question we need to, to, or second truth we need to realize is that we would not base any doctrinal teaching upon a disputed passage. And here's good news A and B. Good news A, there's no new doctrine included in any of these disputed texts. So that's good. It's not like we're really trying to decide are we supposed to follow doctrine A or B. That, that doesn't apply. And, uh, and the second thing is that if you look at the, at the teaching of these texts, especially in, when it comes to John 8, it does seem to be following in the same uh, line of argument and development in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so we're not going to base any basic doctrine on it, but I'm not going to skip it. There's something here that the church has believed we need to see from the life and ministry of Jesus. And there's another reason why I am intent upon a close look at this passage, and that is because it is one of the most fixed passages in the cultural imagination. And it's one of the most problematic texts in which people think they know the text, but they really don't. So our hope this morning is that when we look at the opening to John chapter 8, we'll understand exactly what's going on here, and, and, and we, will, we will look at it clearly. Then that'll help us to understand two things. Number one, what the text is saying, and, and number two, what the culture wants the text to say. Turns out both of those are very interesting. What the text says and what the culture wants it to say, what it means and what the culture desperately wants it to mean. So after all of that, let's actually look at the text. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. They each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, we're told that in the events following John chapter 7, the disciples went home. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. That's a place where we know he went to pray. It's a, a vantage point from which he could observe Jerusalem. But he went to the Mount of Olives to pray. 
early in the morning, he went from the Mount of Olives to the temple. And we're told that when he got to the temple, all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So this would appear to be in one of the outer courts of the temple where the rabbis would teach their students. Jesus did not call them together, but the presence of Jesus was enough to call them to him, and they, they came to him. And there is enough that Jesus had them sit down, he sat, and he taught them. This perhaps reminds us of Matthew chapter 12 and 13, where Jesus was teaching the multitude was so large that Jesus had to get into a boat and get offshore. This is a, this is a large crowd where he would have to sit, and this was probably a considerable time of teaching. And so the, the stage is set for Jesus to be teaching and for the crowd to be listening. Now, here's an interesting question. Don't miss this. What would Jesus have been teaching? This is a, this is a participle, teaching. What is Jesus teaching? He's teaching the Torah. He's, he's teaching the, the law of God. He's doing what rabbis do there in the precincts of the temple. But what makes this story interesting is what happens in the midst of his teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst, they addressed Jesus. So we are told, even in the passage, that this was a test for Jesus. They're, that this, is, this is like when in the synagogue at Capernaum, they brought to Jesus a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath and said, what are you going to do? Are you going to break the Sabbath or are you, are you going to leave the man's hand withered? Uh, they're always trying to test Jesus. And here they're trying to test Jesus again. They, they bring in this case, a woman caught in adultery. Case closed. Witnesses present. Sentence biblical. We have to understand just how high the stakes are here because if Jesus says, yes, let's just go ahead and stone her, then he basically acts as if he is one of the scribes or the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees were two of the most famous groups and, and, and not particularly loved. The Pharisees undoubtedly had some respect because of their scrupulousness in keeping the law. They were a holiness sect, and undoubtedly there were people who respected them for that. The scribes were something like a necessary evil. All of our, our lawyer jokes uh, would be extended to the scribes uh, because the scribes were lawyers. They were the people who showed up and said, ah, oh, it's a little bit different than that, or uh, if, if, if here's a contract, here's a way we might be able to read that contract. When it came to the law of God, which was their main issue, the scribes were firm on this is exactly what the text says, except when they weren't. Uh, they, they, they didn't have the best reputation, but they were scribes as a title. So this is not just, not just someone who has an interest in the law of God, but someone who's trained in the law of God. The, the point is that the Pharisees as a, a righteousness cult and the, uh, the, the scribes as the scholars of the law have brought this woman accused of adultery, indeed caught in the act is what we're told here, and uh, they're just basically daring Jesus to defy the law of God. This is the setup. 
Once again, they think they have an airtight case. It's, uh, it's also very similar to what happens in the Gospel of Matthew when the, uh, w- when the opponents of Jesus come to him and ask him about a woman who's had seven husbands, you know, seven brothers, they all died, which is going to be her husband and in the kingdom. And Jesus, again, they keep setting him up, asking him questions they think he can't answer or putting him in a situation from which he can't escape. That's not a smart thing to do. And in this case, Jesus responds with words we don't know. This is the frustrating thing to us as we read this passage. What did Jesus write with his finger in the dirt on the ground? But but notice before we see Jesus write, the indictment of those who brought the woman, they said, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, before we go further, what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what you think it means. It it means that she's been caught in the act of adultery. Now, there should be a couple of things that should come to our mind. That's not something one does without someone else. This is the woman caught in adultery. And so at least a part of what's going on here is the differential between the man and the woman. In this case, the woman caught in adultery is being brought with the demand that she be stoned. Where's the man? That's the first interesting question. But there's a setup here that has to do with what it even means to be caught in adultery. What does caught in adultery mean? It means that there were witnesses to the adultery. There, There are those who are bringing charges against her as witnesses. The ones who condemn her are the ones who were eyewitnesses according to the law in, uh, in bringing this, this case. Because remember, if you look at the Old Testament, the death penalty requires not just a witness, but two witnesses. So for a death penalty to be carried out, there have to be witnesses to the actual sin, the actual crime. Now, as you might imagine, there's a lot of adultery then that one would get away with because there's no witness to the crime. In this case, there's a witness to the crime. There are witnesses to the crime. They bring the woman to Jesus. They think they have an airtight situation because they have eyewitnesses to the fact that she was caught in adultery. Case closed. The story gets very interesting. As we see, they say, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Oh, they're saying, are you siding with Moses here? Uh, This is what Moses said. God gave Moses the law, and this is the law that Moses handed us. What are you going to do with this, Jesus? Are you going to obey the law? Are you going to prove yourself faithful to the law? Are you going to show yourself faithful or faithless? Are, Are you a liberal are you a theological liberal? Are, are, you from, are you one of those New York City rabbis? Did you go to Harvard? Are, are you going to say, yeah, that's what the text says, but let me tell you what it means. Jesus, are, are you going to tell us there's a loophole here? This is where I want to hear Jesus' words. I want to know the words. What, what, what's he going to say in response? 
Notice what the text says. It says that they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. I want to know what he wrote. There's all kinds of homiletical speculation about what he wrote. And he writes twice, as you see here. He, uh, whatever he writes, the message is communicated. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, what did he write? This, this first time he wrote, he bent down, and with his finger he writes. Well, what, what might he have written? Well, the, this first time, maybe he wrote the law. Maybe that's, that's what he did. Maybe he just wrote the law. We don't know what he wrote, but... At this point, whatever he wrote did not mean that those who read it left. When he writes the second time, they leave. But between the first and the second, he dares them. Let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. Then, as you see, he writes in the ground again. And one more time, he bent down and wrote on the ground. So there's writing one and there's writing two. And between writing one and writing two, Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone at her. Now, obviously, we look at that and we understand there's no one without sin. So there is no one without sin to throw that stone. Okay, uh, but the problem with that is that that doesn't, appear to be very biblically satisfying because the law of Moses did not say that it required an innocent judge, jury, and executioner, so to speak. The, the Bible makes clear everyone's sinful. So if that logic just stands on its own, it appears that what Jesus is saying is we really can't prosecute anyone according to the law because we're all sinners. None of us is in an ethical uh, position in which to, uh, to, to execute the law, to fulfill the law's demands. Well, that can't be what he's saying. It, it's not what he's saying. This is the same Jesus who said not one jot or tittle uh, will be unfulfilled in the law. It, it won't pass away until the entire law is fulfilled. So what did Jesus write? Well, maybe he wrote enough to make clear that everyone there is a sinner, at least to, at least to change the, the mentality of those who appear to be haughty and... Um, kind of victoriously jubilant in that they found this woman to stone. She's just a pretext for trying to present Jesus with a test. Jesus wrote something that had their attention, but then he said, let he who has no sin cast the first stone at her. And there's no pause in the passage when he bends down and writes again. And, and here's where it just gets horribly interesting. Because even as he bends down, and he writes again, 
The response is different. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, they went away one by one. Did you notice something interesting there? He writes with his finger on the ground, and they heard it. It doesn't say when they read it. It says when they heard it. Well, you can hear things written. It probably means they got the message in a big way. You can imagine exactly how this would happen. You can be handed a written message. You can read, but you really hear. Hearing is a, a more powerful word of reception. It doesn't necessarily mean it was audible, but it means they got it. Whatever he writes, they understand. Once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. So the second time he writes, beginning with the older men, they begin to back off. What in the world did Jesus write? Well, the most fun speculation is that Jesus wrote their names with their sin. In John chapter 2, we're told Jesus didn't have to be told what was in man because he'd made man. He knew it was in man. He, he is already their judge. He already knows, as he will say in just a few verses, he, he, he knows them. He already is able to judge them eternally. That would certainly take a lot of the dynamic out of bringing a woman caught in adultery and demanding her be stoned. If the man who you have just demanded to lead the stoning instead starts writing in the dirt your name and your sin. Or, or maybe it was just that he wrote the name of the women with whom these men had had adultery, starting with the older ones, getting to the younger ones. The point is, they back off. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us, number one, that they can't pass Jesus' challenge, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. But, but there's something more here, and what's the more here is what people don't get who, who want to read this passage to say something other than what it says. The, the reason why, it's not just speculation, but would make sense that Jesus is connecting them with their sin is how the law operated. It requires one to condemn. It requires witnesses. Now, oddly enough, in just a few words after this, Jesus is going to say, where I am, there are two witnesses. It's the very next passage. I and the Father. Where, where I am, there are two witnesses. And if he wrote the name down, and, and again, this is pointing to his divine nature. If he could write their names down with their sin, then he's just turned the table. Those who were condemning the woman, he now condemns. 
It's the technicality of the law that's required to understand what's going on here. It's not just embarrassment. It's accusation. I don't know why it begins with the older men. They probably have a longer list of sins. But it begins with the older men. They just begin backing off. And then the, the younger men too, until eventually it's just Jesus and the woman. Well, what does Jesus say to her? We do have those words. He asked her about her accusers. In verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Women, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Now you say, well, that's not true. There were multiple people who condemned her. The point is, they're not there now. And, and this is a formal context. Where, where are they? Where are those who had condemned you? And, and she says, they're not here. No, they're gone. There's no one here to condemn me. And according to the law, that was what was necessary. There would have to be multiple witnesses and official condemnation before her execution could take place. And without that condemnation, without those witnesses, she, she's not condemned. She's standing before Jesus, not condemned. He asked, where are those who condemned you? And she says, they're, they're not here. Who, who, who is here? No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. So there's only one person with her at this moment because the men who had accused her have retreated, the older men, then followed by the younger men. And Jesus says, I'm not condemning you. But from now on, go and sin no more. Now, we have to fast forward in our imagination just a few minutes, just a few verses, just a few inches in the text. And, and Jesus, most famously in the text that follows, in another one of the I am statements, will identify himself as the light of the world. But it's all about witnesses, too. So we're actually going to skip a bit. And, and so just look down to where you have the Pharisees in verse 13 saying to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two men is true. Now, this is where the text becomes fascinating, because as we will see when we follow this through, the logic Jesus uses here is, I have two witnesses about my divine nature. I am a witness, my Father is the witness. This woman had multiple witnesses of her adultery, but they all leave. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you, neither do I condemn you, and from now on, go and sin no more. 
So many things going on here. For one thing, Jesus refuses steadfastly in all four of the Gospels. Jesus refuses steadfastly to render temporal judgment in his earthly ministry. That's extremely important. He refuses to be put in a situation where he renders temporal judgment. Jesus is not going to be put in the position of Solomon with a baby brought to him with two mothers claiming. Jesus is not going to be judge, jury, and executioner when it comes to temporal justice. Jesus is not going to be put in a position of adjudicating someone's estate, executing a will as another comes to him and asks him to do. Jesus is not about today's temporal justice. He is not going to operate as a scribe, as a Pharisee, or even as a member of the Sanhedrin, even as a, 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 a judge in earthly terms, he's going to steadfastly refuse to do so because his judgment will be eternal and it will be absolute. When Jesus says, neither do I judge you, that doesn't mean Jesus doesn't make judgments. It means that Jesus is not going to render a temporal judgment now about her adultery as if he is a trial judge, you know, heading a trial court that is going to lead to the disposition of this charge. No, that's not what he's going to do. And by the way, he knows her heart. He, he, again, he knows what's inside of her. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, Sin no more. On the briefing this past week, I responded to Brian Houston, the senior leader of the Hillsong movement in Australia. I had already talked on the briefing about controversy in Australia about Israel Falau, a rugby player, who got in a lot of controversy because of his tweets. One of the tweets that he had tweeted uh, was a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, he also quoted some from chapter 6. And uh, it, it immediately led to outrage with people saying that he was homophobic and you could imagine. And he was eventually even stricken from the Australian national team, even though he was the leading scorer because of the, of the controversy. Brian Houston, speaking, uh, just, I guess, time for Easter, kind of singled out Izzy, as he called him, and said uh, it was more or less just a bad play on social media. But theologically, the problem was that Izzy was judgmental. And, and Houston went on to say, we, we, don't need to, we don't need to talk about condemnation. And, and then he says of Jesus in John chapter 3, he said, Jesus came to save, not to condemn. And I just pointed out that that's just one of those most dangerous ways of taking Jesus out of context. Jesus doesn't say, or, or the text of John 3 doesn't say, that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world may be saved because the world wasn't under condemnation. But rather, the text says, Jesus came into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save 
because the world is already under condemnation. The world wants to think that it's not under condemnation and it's not under any risk of condemnation. When you say Jesus came to save, not to condemn, and you take that out of context, it sounds like Jesus is just another get-along, go-along kind of moral relativist, ready to say to a sin-bent culture, it's no big deal. But that's precisely what Jesus doesn't do. John chapter 3 doesn't say Jesus decided to come in the world to save, and, and he's not even going to worry about condemnation. Okay, he doesn't come to condemn. Why worry about condemnation? That's a heavy, judgmental term. No, we're told that Jesus doesn't come to condemn because no one had to come to condemn because the world is already under the Father's condemnation. That's essential. So, is this woman free of condemnation? No. Not in any eternal judgment. But she is not going to be condemned for this sin this day by those who brought the accusation against her in order not so much to execute justice because of their zeal for the law, not because of their esteem for marriage, but because they wanted to entrap Jesus. Jesus is not going to allow that to happen. But you can't turn this into a statement where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, that it's just a, a laissez-faire, uh, therapeutic uh, morally elastic judgment in which Jesus says, I'm not big into condemnation. Don't worry about that. I, one of the things I, I, I tell students is that one of the first days I was in the classroom, a very liberal professor, uh, then at the seminary, which is a part of how I came to know the problem, uh, he, he said in the very first hour of the very first class, my very first day at seminary, he, he denied the blood atonement and substitution. And, and then he went on and, uh, and denied condemnation entirely. And, and then he said this. He said, Jesus, he's talking about the incarnation. The class is on the Gospel of Matthew. So we're, in, we're just beginning the nativity uh, opening to, to Matthew. And he said this. He said, Jesus is the Father's way of getting over a bad reputation. Now, that sounds like such a clever statement. Jesus is God's way of getting over a bad reputation. But you understand that what was clearly insinuated there is that the angry, vengeful, holy, righteous God of the Old Testament believes he's been misrepresented as overly judgmental. And he sends Jesus to make clear that everything's basically okay. That is not the Bible. That is not the ministry and mission of Jesus. But that's what people want to read into this very passage. You, they read this passage, they go, see, this is it, this is it. Who's going to throw the first stone? You know, and we're, we, don't, we don't condemn. We, we're, Jesus doesn't condemn us for our sin. He just, he just gives us a little therapeutic advice, a little moralism at the end. Go and sin no more. Just do better. Just do better. I don't condemn you. Just, just do better. Our society loves this passage. And when, in, in, in a scriptural age of illiteracy, 
where so few people even know what's in the Bible, everyone seems to know this. This textual variant becomes the, the, the manifesto of a, of a society around us wanting to say, sin's no big deal. See, Jesus said so. But just looking at the text, as we look at it carefully, we recognize there are technicalities here that are central to the story that help us to understand from the beginning. There's a formal process whereby an accuser has to be joined by a witness. So the accuser and witness, and multiple witnesses can come and they bring the condemnation. So we have no reason to believe they were wrong. Do you get that? We have no reason to believe she wasn't caught in the act of adultery. We, 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 we have no reason to believe it didn't happen. The problem, the problem was that those who were bringing the accusation turned out to be as sinful as she. That's the, that's the only implication. Whatever Jesus wrote, it was embarrassing enough. We just know that. It was embarrassing enough that the, those who were her, her accusers, they backed off, beginning with the older men and then the younger men also. So what does that tell you? That tells you not only was there not at the end of the story less condemnation, there's actually more. There's actually more. That's, that's where the tables are turned. So it turns out that what began as one woman being condemned for her sin ends up with, we don't know how many men came to bring an accusation against her, but by the time they backed away, evidently they were all condemned. And when Jesus said, where are they? You know, where's the one who condemned you? And, and, and she makes very clear they're gone, and Jesus is the one who made her clear that she saw that, but, but he's still there. Remember, he's still there, and he knows. He knows. And then Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. And again, that's not, it's not a statement of moral relativism. It's a statement of his ministry. You're already condemned. And how do you know that? It is because of the tense of the sentence that follows. Go and sin no more. You and I both know you were caught in the act of adultery. And remember just four chapters earlier, the woman at the well and the conversation with Jesus. And Where's your husband? Oh, I've actually had several and no, that's not exactly what she says. She's evasive. It's Jesus who says, yes, you've had several husbands, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. He knew what was in man. He, he knows, and he's not without moral judgment. But his judgment will come later. And his judgment will be the determination between heaven and hell. Neither do I condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. It's also interesting that in the cultural imagination of this passage, it's only the first part even of that last sentence that people want to hear. Neither do I condemn you. But Jesus actually makes sin visible. 
And he says, go and sin no more. You were committing adultery. You know it, and I know it. Stop it. Jesus doesn't say it's no big deal. Now, if we were scripting this passage, we would want to know what was written. If, uh, if we were scripting this, we'd want there to be more to the story. What does she do? What's the next chapter in her life? The fact is, we don't know. And we began this entire hour looking at this passage and reminding ourselves that this is a textual variant. And we reminded ourselves of the warning that we do not base any doctrinal teaching on this that would not be affirmed elsewhere in Scripture comprehensively. But there's nothing in this passage that is inconsistent with anything taught anywhere in Scripture. It's actually quite consistent with John chapter 4. It's extremely consistent with John chapter 8 and what follows. There's no problem here. The problem is not in the words of the text. The problem is in the cultural imagination of a society that will suck all of the judgment out of the text and, and, and leave it just moralism, and, and, and that a very non-judgmental moralism. But of course, if you're, going to, if you're going to vacuum all the judgment out of the text, you also vacuum all the grace out of the text. Several years ago, and I've written a lot and talked a lot about this, but you've probably read some of it yourself. Several years ago, Christian Smith and a, a group of researchers began to follow early adolescents in the United States in a massive study. They actually continued the study as these young people grew from early adolescence into middle and late adolescence, and then into what they wanted to call early adulthood, but that wasn't really working out, so that became part of the story. Instead, emerging adulthood, uh, in which the adults weren't emerging on schedule, but nonetheless, it, it's a massive, incredibly responsible study of these kids. They were 12, 13, 14 when it began, uh, through the, their late 20s and their spiritual and theological beliefs. And uh, this was about 3,600 teenagers. That's a very large sample for the kind of intensive conversations they had. Just imagine trying to manage all those conversations. Huge team of researchers. But, but here's what they came up with. They came up with the fact that across religious identities, Jewish, Catholic, mainline Protestant, evangelical Christian, they found certain patterns that were so dominant they could not be ignored about the spiritual and theological beliefs of these young people. And again, we're talking in the beginning about children, just middle school kids. They said that the commonalities of their theology were this, that there is a God but he's not particularly scrupulously involved in my life. They're not atheists, not by a long shot. They believe that God created the world and you need God as an explanation for why the universe exists or for why they exist. But they don't believe in a God 
who knows them personally and is personally engaged in their lives. And so Christian Smith and his team put the right theological word on that, which is deism. They, they, they hold to a basically deistic worldview. Yes, there's a God. You can't explain the world. You can't explain history without God. God's involved in big things and in big ways, but not particularly in my life. And, and then they went on to say that these young people had another second almost universal theological principle, was, which was ethical, that this God who exists and without whom you can't explain the world and isn't deeply involved in their lives does want them to behave. And uh, it tells you something about uh, God making us in his image. These middle school students knew that they were known. They, they, they knew conscience and uh, they knew that God wanted them to do right. And so Christian Smith and his team just called that moralism. That's what it is. Just, you know, just basically do right. They're, they're deists and they're moralists. But he said there was a third big doctrine that they held to, and that is that more than anything else, what God wanted for them was that they be happy. That if you take all these 12, 13, 14-year-olds and then follow them when they're 15 through 19 and then follow them when they're 19 through 29, it turns out that they hold the same three doctrines. Yes, there is a God, deistic, Yes, he wants us to do right, moralism, and, uh, and he wants us all basically to be happy. And they rightly referred to this as therapeutic. So moralistic therapeutic deism is what they call this religion. Moralistic therapeutic deism. MTD, it has been made into an acronym. That's the American religion. Frighteningly, Christian Smith and his associates ask and answer the question, where did these kids get this theology? And here's the, here's the condemnation upon us. He said, these kids got their theology at church, and they got this theology from their parents. That tells us that an awful lot of what, let's just take evangelical Protestants, an awful lot of what we think we're doing in Sunday school, we may not be doing very well. A lot of the things we as parents think we're doing with our kids, we may not be doing very well. If we're raising moralistic, therapeutic deists in our homes, then we're just telling them there is a God. He wants you to behave, and he wants you to be happy. That's just not Christianity. We don't hold to deism, but theism. We don't hold to morality, we actually hold the law. And we don't think that what God wants for us supremely is therapy, but rather atonement. Turns out it's really hard to make that point clear. It also turns out that the society is looking for license, and that's what it finds right in this passage. This is the theme text when it's taken out of context of moralistic therapeutic deism. This is it. So when you are talking with your neighbors and, and, and it, their favorite Bible verse, if they have one, if they even think about it, uh, it, it, it probably comes down to something like this. It's just what our society wants to be told. 
But as I say, that's only if you don't actually read the passage. If you read the passage, it isn't moralistic therapeutic deism. It's the Lord of the universe telling this woman caught in adultery that she is a sinner. She needs salvation. He tells her to go and sin no more. But then a great deal more is coming in the text that follows. So as we bring this to conclusion, we just spent an hour looking at a text that's a textual variant. And we did so without apology. We considered it within its context. We understand it for what it is. And oddly enough, it may be most important for us to understand what it tells us about the society around us or even what we ourselves want to hear rather than why it is in this text, however it entered this text, and is presented to us this morning. So we need to end the way we began in prayer. Our Father, we come before you praying that this text will be used by you in our hearts to make us yearn for Christ even more and rest in the gospel even more and yearn for Christ even more. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.